Good morning, and welcome to this week's episode of Politics in the Pulpit, a lectionary-based preaching resource designed to ask the provocative questions of how politics could appear in our preaching this week. My name is Jackie Embry. I'm a newly retired United Reformed Church minister. I have worked with churches across Birmingham and Bolton and Salford, and as moderator of the United Reformed Church's Mersey Synod. I'm now living in Kendall on the edge of the Lake District. Each week, I'm joined by a different guest, and today I'm very pleased to introduce Professor Anthony Reddy, who is the Professor of Black Theology at the University of Oxford. He is also the Director of the Oxford Centre for Religion and Culture in Regent's Park College, the University of Oxford, and is an extraordinary Professor of the University of South Africa. So welcome, Anthony, and thanks very much for coming on the podcast this week. It's a real pleasure to be with you. So some headlines that reflect our context today. Storm Isha hit the UK over the weekend, causing chaos and disruption. The Rwanda bill passed its third reading in the House of Commons last week and is being debated in the House of Lords today. The Russia-Ukraine war is coming up to 700 days of war and the violence continues. 85% of Gaza's population has been displaced and 25,000 have been killed in Gaza. The residents of part of Port-au-Prince in Haiti are trapped by gang members who've targeted that area of the capital. Violence between Iran and Pakistan is escalating, but there is some good news on the climate front. Chile is set to be the first country to ratify a global agreement to protect a third of the world's oceans. The EU has approved a law to tackle greenwashing and data showed that deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon declined by half in 2023. Church-wise, we're in the season of Epiphany and the week of prayer for Christian unity, which runs from the 18th to the 25th. It'll be Holocaust Memorial Day on the 27th. And the lectionary readings for Sunday the 28th of January are Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 20, Psalm 111, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13, and Mark 1, 21 to 28. So Anthony, I guess the first question is, is the pulpit the right place for politics? I would say absolutely. Um, and my reason for saying that is that the gospel speaks to all aspects of life. And therefore, if it speaks all, to all aspects of life, then it seems quite natural that one of the places it should also speak to is the politics. The politics is essentially about how we organise resources, how we make I think quite key determined choices around how those resources are allocated. Those are deeply political um, subjects and issues. And clearly, I believe that the gospel has something key to say about all of that. So where would you begin if you were preaching this Sunday? I think for me, what I would always do is to think about the context and the text. And by that, I mean that obviously within these texts there are particular narratives, stories, themes that have been, um, I guess, part and parcel of the text. So if it's the Deuteronomy one, it, for me, clearly has issues about who is in and who is out in terms of land. In terms of Corinthians, there's a question of, um, about idols and, and, and issues of religious purity. Then in terms of the Mark's Gospel, when we think in terms of demons, which obviously seems quite strange to us in our modern context, again, there are questions of, of 
of who is in and who's out, who belongs and who doesn't. I think once you understand some of those themes and then clearly do some kind of exegesis around the original context in which those texts have been produced, I then bring the text into conversation with the context. And so the context obviously will vary depending upon the church where you're preaching it, someone who was in the Methodist tradition. We traditionally, in terms of being lay preachers and ordained preachers, don't get to choose where we go. It's the superintendent who makes a plan and you go where you're sent. And so I'm always aware that obviously some congregations will greet me with more enthusiasm than others. Um, um, but essentially, the context then becomes the way in which one then begins to draw out these themes and then applies them, hopefully, for ways that are illustrative in our particular context now and throw up challenges um, for our ethics in terms of how we live. I've always felt that that a good servant should do two things. One, it should affirm that we already know and believe about God and be good news. But also it should convict and challenge us and to say, well, actually, when um, actually, although we believe this is good news, for that good news to be realised, what changes need to happen? What are the challenges to our existing ways of living that we need to attend to? Yeah, so that, that's quite a lot to fit into a relatively short time. Indeed, yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned in, in Deuteronomy, the land. Is, is that particularly topical at the moment, do you think, with the Israel-Gaza context? Yeah, absolutely, because I think one of the things that we have to wrestle with is the legacy of colonialism. And so colonialism, however we want to interpret it, is essentially about land. It's usually about the appropriation of land. It's usually about the ways in which one particular group has determined where lines will be drawn, who will be in and who will be out, and what are the consequences of those lines of those land lines being drawn. And I think one of the things that we have to acknowledge, and I say we as in British people, you know, um, including myself, is is our involvement in the Balfour Declaration that helped to create. The particular dynamic that we now see being that we now see being played out, and so clearly, just as in ancient times, issues of land and and to whom it belongs, and to whom God seems to have sanctioned that land to belong to particular groups as opposed to other groups, those issues have not changed hugely. And I think geopolitics, I think geopolitics around space and land are still big issues and they're things that people like myself and Willie James Jennings and other post-colonial and liberationist theologians are still wrestling with. Yeah. And how do you help folk in the pew to to wrestle with that sort of thing in, in a way that, that means something for them when sometimes the issues seem a long way away, either in yeah. time or place? Yeah, indeed. Well, so for me, I think one of the things I often try to do is that a way into a particular text is to think of a particular anecdote or story that perhaps I think sort of domesticates it, I think makes it a bit more human and a bit closer to home in, in, in terms of what that means. And so, for example, if, if, if I were preaching this sermon, one of the stories I'd tell, which is, is a true story, 
is of when I was four years old, maybe five years old. So I'm the eldest of five children, eldest of four children. So eldest of four children. And I'm told the story. I don't remember it exactly, but my mother swears blind it did happen. So I came home from school one day and found that my younger brother, Richard, was now wearing one of the jumpers. Well, not jumper, but whole outfit that I used to wear, basically. It couldn't fit me anymore. And so, uh, and so obviously it was handed down as happens in families. Now, here's the thing. That item could not fit me, and I just... And I really stopped wearing it for, for several months. But suddenly this visceral sign that this had been handed over to someone else just affronted me. And so I went upstairs and emptied my closet, brought all my clothes down and then said, well, okay, you know, I mean, if you're going to give my clothes away, then actually just go and take everything else as well. You know, I mean, you know, obviously I was a very prima donna eldest child. Um, very simplistic anecdote. But what I would then do from that is to say, but what I felt at that moment is seeing something that belonged to me being handed over to someone else. Yeah. And how did I feel about that? Now, I think most people in the congregation would have some sense of being able to appreciate a simple anecdote like that. Then what I then do then then do is to go to the text, explore what's happening in the text and to show that there are dynamics that of course are not the same thing, you know. I mean land being appropriated is one thing. Obviously having the jumper taken off me and given to my younger brother is something completely different. So I don't want to be simplistic about that. But I but I've often found that if you can find a story or an anecdote as a way into something. Yeah. Then once you then begin to explore it, what you can then do is to use that as a way to say, well, these are the bigger issues that are taking place in this particular text, and they then have, which is the final bit, the implications for how we are living with a particular experience, a particular incident at the moment. Clearly, one cannot escape the reality around Gaza, but before Gaza, in terms of Russia and Ukraine, which are about land and who was in it and who's and to whom does it belong? And what happens if a particular group feel that what belongs to them has been taken off them? And the implications for that in terms of our human living, in terms of our emotional response to that, in terms of anger for some and defensiveness for others. And then ultimately what I'm I suppose I'm trying to do in the pulpit, given that it is a privileged space. And so what I try not to do is to preach my personal politics. I'm trying to bring what is that I believe is a gospel perspective, but also acknowledging that that there is no one gospel's perspective. So I also want to be to be honest and say this is the gospel's perspective as I am interpreting this. And therefore I want to leave room for individuals in the congregation to hear what I'm saying and to dissent from it. So I'm, I'm not preaching on the basis at the end of it, everyone will say Anthony was just spot on, he was 100% right, and I agree with everywhere. Actually, people leave feeling, actually, I really disagree with him. I don't see how he can read the text that way. That's okay with me, because if they're leaving thinking about what they have heard, and if they're leaving even if they're contesting it and saying, I just think it's fundamentally wrong, 
That, for me, is a result. The worst result isn't people disagree with me. I think the worst result is, is people walking out and five minutes later, they can't remember a word that you said. And it was like a bit like, like the worst type of anemic Chinese meal. I mean, the worst type, obviously. I mean, the best type is, is the meal that you eat and it's memorable. The worst type, which I've eaten a few times, is that like you've eaten it, and then about 50 minutes later, A, you can't remember what you've eaten, and B, you're still hungry. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, yeah, the, the worst thing somebody can say after a sermon is something like, that was nice, um, <laughs> which means you haven't hit anything. I mean, I, I found it interesting that, I mean, our psalm this week is, is a praise psalm, um, but it talks about the covenant being forever. And of course, what you interpret as the covenant is, is important there. Um, and it's also talking about fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that led me on to thinking about listening and, and, and whether we're good at presuming we're right and therefore we've listened to God and God is kind of um, backing up what we already think, so to speak. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things I have learned over the years, and, and I say this as someone who is guilty of the very thing I'm often criticising in others, which is that when we're in a conversation, one is not deeply listening to what the other is saying, that as they are speaking, what one is doing is formulating your next response in order to try and trump what they were saying, in order to prove that you are right and they're, and they're wrong. And I often think that's what we do with our prayers, that when we are praying to God, we're not really listening to what God might be saying to us. I think we are, are constructing our words in such a way that we're inviting God to agree with us so, so that we can then continue on our merry way with our pre-existing ideas that we then graft into the gospel rather than the gospel being the one that is shaping our ideas and our convictions and, and our ethics. So listening is very, very difficult, particularly if you have attained a level of privilege and you're used to speaking and you're used to your and used to your voice being heard. Um it was interesting in that when I reflect on the nature of being a preacher and certainly having attained a level of visibility and and relative success, I suppose, in the offices I hold, that that it becomes harder to listen because you get used to your voice, and invariably people invite you to speak at, to them and with them rather than invite you to sit down so that they can speak to you and you can listen. Um, and so, so texts like these are really an interesting challenge because because there was a temptation to to create a gospel narrative that fits one's pre-existing ideology and politics and your perspective on the world. So, you know, uh, so again, really, to, to, to be very honest, I was named after Tony Benn. So my dad was a ardent trade unionist person on the left who believed in the values of socialism and the Labour Party probably more than he did in Christianity, certainly when he was younger. I mean, now he's older and, and, and maybe a tad more conservative and a bit less radical. Perhaps it's the other way around, but certainly when I was growing up, he was very much in 
to kind of Labour Party politics. And I'm and I say that to to be clear that when I'm doing my interpretation of biblical text, I'm not doing it neutrally. I'm not doing it with a view that that my perception of what the kingdom of God is is somehow aligned to political and, and ideological perspectives with which I disagree. Clearly, I don't have that at all. And so, therefore, my interpretation of these texts would be very much aligned with that. And so part of what I think all of us need is some type of framework that not necessarily restrains us, but at least keeps us aware of the dangers of slipping from theology into ideology. Yeah, because, I mean, Deuteronomy talks about false prophets. And, and I guess the question is, how do I discern who's the false prophet and who's the one I should really listen to? And sometimes I think that the if 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 I don't really want to hear it, then perhaps it is the truth. Yeah, and, 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 and actually, I think one of the hardest things to hold on to is that it's not always obvious who the true prophets are and who the false ones are, and. I think ultimately it's usually history that helps us to understand that. I think there's a great quote from Paul Tillich who says that life is lived forwards but understood backwards. Um, and normally it's usually with the judgment of hindsight that we can look back and say, well, clearly it should have been this but not this, or it should have been this person, and this person was a false prophet or was a demagogue or was someone who was playing a kind of popularist card that we now look back on and feel quite embarrassed about. Um, and so for me, I think one of the key things about trying to make that kind of discernment is, is, is largely who is on the side of the marginalised and the oppressed. Who is the one who's speaking up for the unpopular cause? That's not always a panacea for all else. That doesn't mean that, that, doesn't mean that the person who's definitely doing that will always be the prophet. But I think it's a useful barometer in terms of asking ourselves who are the ones who are standing for the marginalised and the oppressed. One of the people I spend a lot of time following in terms of his work is a guy called Miguel D'Alatono, who is a Cuban-American um, scholar. Um, he's a social ethicist. And he says this, he says, in most of our societies, we praise upwards and blame downwards. We praise upwards and blame downwards. And so for me, if I'm trying to discern who the prophet is, who's the one who's speaking for the people who usually end up being demonized? Who speaks up for the ones who are often castigated and are being ascribed as the problem? So, for example, one of the issues that you spoke about is our Rwanda bill at the moment. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. It is largely a popular measure according to the public. According to the public, most British people seem to be in favour of less immigration and therefore the idea of taking vulnerable people and, and sending them off to a, 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 a third country where most of us, without any due respect or any insult to Rwanda, most of us actually would not want to be removed there to live there from the UK. But yeah, it's perfectly okay to send other people there. That is a popular bill if 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 one if one listens to 
the opinion polls, so to speak. So for me, a prophet is is the one who is then saying, well, who is speaking for the unpopular causes, the ones that are not going to make you celebrate the public, the ones that will get you, um, uh, I guess, not vilifying on social media, whether it's X or whether it's um, TikTok or, or some other um, social media. Um, um, platform. And so for me, that is my asset test of what is a profit. But again, I will put my hand up and say it's not foolproof. And and oftentimes it is, it's usually history that's probably the best judge. Yeah, which obviously is unfortunate in the moment, but um, yeah. yeah, I can, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when it comes to the Corinthians reading, um, you know, Paul, Paul says this, that, that knowledge puffs up and love builds up. And that kind of hits home every time. Um, and how not to be a stumbling block for the week, if you like. And I did wonder whether there was some connection there, given there's this a week of prayer, whether part of our holding on to the denominations might be a stumbling block for others. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, um, the one of the things I learned from the elders in my community, uh, particularly my mother and grandmother and aunts and uncles, was the difference between wisdom and knowledge. The one could have lots of knowledge, but not necessarily be wise. And so just because you know things, because like you think that like you know lots of things doesn't necessarily mean that you know how to apply it or you know how to engage with other people. And what we know is that sometimes some of the most knowledgeable people, people with a huge amount of intellect, have not used that for the betterment of other people. They use it in order to denigrate other people and use it to create hierarchies and forms of exclusion. And so for me, at the heart of wisdom is love. And so what happens when we genuinely believe that that no group has a monopoly on wisdom, that no group has a monopoly on access to the truth of God's revelation in Jesus and Spirit. So that for me is the quintessential importance of, of ecumenism, is the understanding that none of our traditions have a monopoly on that. So one of the things it took me a long time to learn. So I think we first met at the Queen's Foundation yeah. a long, long time ago. <laughs> and that has been one of the most important parts of my formation because prior to that, I didn't realize just how much of a particular type of Methodist I was having grown up in West Yorkshire. Um, in the Central Methodist, Central Methodist Mission, which I grew up, we were about, certainly about several hundred yards away from Bradford Cathedral. And certainly the first 18, 19 years of my life, by part of leaving Birmingham, part of leaving Bradford to go and, live, go and study in Birmingham. I was proud of the fact that in that church, I had never set foot in the cathedral. Never set foot in the cathedral because as far as I was concerned, they were Anglicans and the Church of England were not the true church. We were the true church as Methodists. We were the ones who had left like to live out a life of righteousness and justice 
and equity for all people. And I genuinely believed, not necessarily I was taught that, but certainly what I had inferred from my aforementioned was the presumption of Methodism being absolutely right and the Church of England being fundamentally wrong. Even to the point of when I first went to an ecumenical service and saw an Anglican priest reading out the prayers, I remember thinking, but well, I can't be a proper prayer because proper prayers are always ex proper prayers are always extemporary, which is what we did in our evangelical tradition. So the fact that you're reading a prayer only goes to prove everything I've always believed that these Anglicans are nominal Christians who have no concept of the Holy Spirit and are not serious Christians like us in the Methodist tradition. Well, obviously, the older I've got, the more nonsensical I've seen that to become. And I realise, much as you said, that, that sometimes our stumbling blocks are the sense of the knowledge we've acquired about our tradition, which is not to say that those things are, are intrinsically wrong, but it's wrong if you assume that there's a monopoly on virtue and truth mm -hmm. that only lies in one tradition and somehow is not shared amongst all the wider part of the family of God, the body of Christ, of our covenant, I guess, with each other in terms of all of us trying to respond to God's love and to God's revelation in Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I mean, I like what you say about groups of, of any sort. I'm not just talking about groups of Christians, but um, somehow it's easier to dismiss an individual as being an aberration or something. Um, but when a group gets together and you hear what they're saying, then you really need to stop and think, um, have I missed something here? But, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because I think one of the challenges around how we live with sameness and difference. Um, and that's something that I take from all of these texts. I think a, a, a way of looking at these texts in a kind of sympathetic, maybe a kind of integrated way is the challenges around who is in and who is out and where do we draw the lines around that difference. And that difference can be ethnic and cultural, but it can also be denominational and theological as well. And the temptation to fall into our kind of tribal groups where it's us against them and the presumption that the other, however we conceive of the others, is fundamentally wrong and we are right, is something that I think that we have to resist or at least be very, very careful of because I don't think anything good ever comes from that kind of tribalism where we have these hard and fast lines between people that then seems to close down dialogue and communication and our communion in Christ. Yeah. And obviously that um, theme carries on in, into Mark. Is, is there anything you want to say about the gospel uh, reading this week? Yeah. So the thing about Mark for me is that what is always, I think what is always exemplary about Jesus and his engagement with people in different contexts is the way in which he's always in the business of restoring people. He's always in the business of enabling people to be reconciled to each other. I mean, ultimately, that's the whole aim, I think, of his of his ministry and his and I guess like the meaning of the cross is essentially is essentially about reconciliation. It's essentially about how we bring, well, how God in Christ bring thing, brings things and people back together again. And so in the text, what we see is someone who has been separated from the community 
by uh, in terms of their condition. And Jesus restores them. And so for me, that then says, well, what are the responsibilities of us in terms of trying to bring about restoration, in terms of trying to bring about reconciliation, in terms of trying to enable particularly those on the margins, those who are seen as outside, those who are not one of us, how do we bring people back in again? Because one of the things we know from some of the work that comes out of Venezuela and some of the scholars who have looked at social systems is that scapegoating is something that human beings do very, very well, very naturally. It's always easy to find the person to blame, say, well, it's their fault. And then, of course, they then get excluded from the community, whether it's women who get pregnant, who are not married, whether it's immigrants, whether it's uh, people with mental health issues, whether it's the people who make us feel uncomfortable because they have Tourette's or they have some form of, um, well, some that we perceive as being a, being a kind of behavioural problem. It's very easy to exclude them. And, and although we might want to wrestle with some of the literalism of this text around what we mean by spirits or unclean spirits, and, and, as Anne said in the text, what we can infer from that, whether it's literal or not, is that sense of trying to attend to those factors that, and that have pushed some people outside of the community and left them in exile, either literal exile or in or in some metaphorical terms. And then the question then becomes, how then do we bring them back in again? How is the gospel about form of inclusion that says that all of us belong? Because ultimately, if belonging was on the basis of merit, then actually all of us actually would be outside because actually God's grace is such that it takes those of us, it takes all of us who are undeserved, but brings us in, but brings us onto the inside in proximity to God because God is love and God in Christ in the spirit is all reconciling us to one another. And, and that kind of brings us back to what you were saying earlier in terms of ourselves how do we hold together the fact that God has put us in and, and we need to bring others in rather than stand with a barrier around us saying, I'm in and you're out? Yeah. 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 I mean, I think fundamentally what I'm always reminding myself, and, and I start with myself because I'm a firm believer in the dictum that comes from the Dalai Lama, which is about so trying to be the change that you want to see in the world. So I think it, it starts, particularly as preachers, it starts with us being self-critical of ourselves that then enables us then hopefully our best to, to challenge other people to think about how we are challenging one another. And fundamentally, it's, it's, a, it's a reminder that the gospel is always more than our own set of preconceived ideas around what we think that is. And so... When we invite people in, like we invite people in because it's not that it's our house, but it's God's house. Um, and therefore, I'm always slightly wary of a kind of a sort of consumerist model that wants to equate church with a kind of a kind a kind of uh, uh, sort of a commodity that says, "Well, actually, this is what I like. This is what speaks to me." I think that's the weakness 
of sometimes in some of our fresh expressions. Not all of it by any means, as would be clear about that. But, but sometimes that way of so okay, let's see if we can create a church that will speak to people's needs. That is helpful. But also, I think the church has to be more than that, to be a place that also speaks to people's challenges and their preconceived notions and their blind spots around what they think is acceptable and what isn't. Because ultimately, I'm, I'm a firm believer that God's graciousness is much more expansive and far wider than anything that we would, I guess, like attribute ourselves. And so I want to ensure that the gospel that I'm preaching is truly a liberating gospel that is of God and not a, I guess, a manufactured, limited version that comes out of the ideology of Anthony Reddy. Because if it's the latter, then inevitably it will end up being based on my prejudices of who I think should be in and who I think should not be in. And that usually ends up with being people who kind of agree with us and the ones who don't agree with us. And the ones that we assume are condemned and damned. And that usually looks like very much a humanistic framing, not a God-inspired vision. Yeah, God is far bigger than we can comprehend. Is there anything you want to add before we finish, Anthony? Bits we've missed out or? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think what I take from these particular texts is that there's a potential to be controversial, certainly in terms of how one might interpret them and then apply them to our present context and then the challenges that are facing us. And I think sometimes there's often a temptation amongst preachers to go for the easier message because we don't necessarily want to upset anyone or we don't want to be seen um, in ways that are not complementary, you know. I mean, most of us by instinct want to be liked rather than not liked. And, and whilst I get that, I think if, if, if we're thinking again about the nature of being a prophet, we're thinking in terms of that, the Deuteronomy text, you know, I mean, who's a prophet? What is it? Prophets are always speaking the truth, as they understand. And, and, and sometimes the truth that precedes our sense of consensus. And that's where the controversy comes in, because if we're fortunate, then hindsight might maybe justify us. But at the time of saying it, it may well be the fact that what we're saying is something that is not generally agreed upon at this moment. But we say anyway in the hope that it, in the hope that it is God's words, not our words. And it may not land today or tomorrow, but maybe at some point in the future, people will look back and say, you know something? I remember preacher X saying this, and I really disagree with him, but now that I've reflected on it, and now that we've seen how certain events have developed, actually maybe that was a prophetic word. Yeah. And, and I'm sure you've said plenty in your time, um, but I do know that virtually none of the prophets were appreciated at the point at which they spoke. <laughs> no. So thank you very much indeed for sharing your, your wisdom and your reflections with us today. It's been much appreciated. And, and thank you to the rest of you for joining us to ask whether or how we should preach politics from the pulpit this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts 
and share this episode with your friends. We also have online spaces for further engagement and discussion about faith and politics on X or Twitter at public issues or using hashtag politics in the pulpit. We also have a Facebook group, which you can access through the Joint Public Issues Team's Facebook page and the web website jpit.uk. That's jpit.uk. Thank you.